When we listen to the ocean and we hear the waves, for many, it's a calming feeling. We close our eyes, breathe in, and allow ourselves to be soothed. Each wave comes in, we breathe in. A wave goes out, we breathe out. Wave in, breathe in, wave out, breathe out. And in normal life, ideally, each task, each issue, comes at us like a wave. We breathe in, deal with it, and breathe out. On to the next wave. But what happens when the surf picks up and waves crash, one after the other? What happens if we can't ever breathe out? When wave after wave begins to pummel us, how can we breathe? In the inaugural episode of my podcast, A Work in Progress, I want to talk about just a few of the waves that are coming at me, at our educational system, and unpack how some of those waves might actually help move a system that has been stuck in a place that ignores the reproductive nature of our educational system that continues to benefit those with privilege and leaves the rest behind. We'll talk about some current scholars and abolitionists, and because it's my podcast, We'll talk a little bit about me and where I fit in. As you will see, I am a work in progress, hence the title of my podcast. Each episode will focus on one or two aspects of education, from pre-K through grad school and into academia and higher education. Since I have one foot in a K through 12 school and another one in higher education, most of my reading, learning, and research will focus on how they are connected and how my ideas emerge. So join me as we learn to lean into the waves, just like my dad taught me. So let's get back to those waves. I am many things. My current roles include mother, I'm a daughter, I'm a wife, a friend, an advocate, a collaborator, a researcher, a mentor, a student, so much. And each day, pieces of this spring up. Each aspect of my life takes on different importance at different times, with none ever really completely capturing my attention. Sometimes the feelings wash over me like waves. They overwhelm me at the most inopportune times. I struggle to breathe, the muscles around my heart, Maybe even my heart begin to contract. My gut sinks, then flutters up. My eyes begin tearing up. This is what pandemic life is like. This is my reality. And I'm one of the lucky ones. I have a home. I have a stable job that I can do from home. Although we can talk later about how online learning is nothing like in-person learning. My children are healthy. They can keep up with schoolwork. But not everyone is in the same boat. And it is with that in mind that I have spent hours online since our school board shifted to Zoom board meetings, attending, taking notes, commenting. I'd like to encourage an audit of direct instruction time, how long students are actually receiving active learning, not dealing with technical issues, which tend to be greatest in homes with fewer financial resources, which occur in our lower SED schools. 
I'm concerned about the continued disparity in learning based on access and privilege. Families who have the resources to enter into pods continue to gain access to special services. I am proud that as a district, we've opened up spaces for our highest needs students per teacher and school feedback, but I'd imagine that there are many more students who aren't doing as well as expected, but they're able to hide it in distance learning. I wonder if the board has started to develop an equity plan for the next few years to make up for the significant loss that will happen in 2020. Separately, I continue to be disappointed at the delayed proposal for middle school interaction. As I mentioned at the last board meeting, I also believe that for those sixth graders who have not yet- That was a portion of a comment I delivered the night of my birthday. We were given two minutes to share our concerns, so I had to speak quickly, and I still ran out of time. That's the way that school board meetings work. The public is given a set amount of time. The fact that over 20 people wanted to share their thoughts meant that we had fewer minutes to speak. The minute the clock struck midnight on my birthday, I was still in that board meeting. It had started at 6.30 p.m. and wouldn't end until 1.30 a.m. The update on progress in our schools was delivered in the middle of the night, and as a result, many people were not able to hear it. In our first class on leadership, diversity, and culture, we were all asked to share what truly makes us angry in education. What a hard question. I spent some time thinking about how to answer it in a way that would be adequate, but I kept thinking of small examples. I couldn't wrap my head around what I would write until I was sitting in the school board meeting and heard one example after another of what the district couldn't do and why they couldn't do it, while at the same time I was looking all around at my affluent neighbors, nearby schools, and seeing that they were doing it. My initial thought was, money. It's all about money. That's a rational answer, right? Funding allows for an increase of supports and allows for greater flexibility. But I had worked with my fellow parents and we had developed some solutions that we presented to the board. Only one solution required funding. The rest could be implemented with very few resources. Unfortunately, only one board member responded. Many of the things we asked for relied on limited resources or we were volunteering to help. I gathered and mobilized 40 frustrated parents to ask the district and our schools to take advantage of our supports, knowledge, and skills. And instead of recognizing and appreciating our willingness to help, instead of activating that network, we were ignored. I followed up with our principal who indicated that she had received the message and she was grateful. But again, nothing was done. I'm about to talk about interest convergence, and I want to stop for a moment to explain what interest convergence is. This is a term that was coined by the late Derek Bell, a law professor. He talked about it in describing the fact that Brown v. Board of Education was not simply decided because the concept of separate but equal was wrong, but also it was decided because the interest of white people converged with the interest of black people in that moment. I will let one of my favorite scholars, Dr. Gloria Ladson-Billings, describe interest convergence in her own words. Another tenet of critical race theory is Derrick Bell's conception of interest convergence. Interest convergence suggests that civil rights legislation only passes when it produces benefits for the dominant culture. So if you take the case of affirmative action, most whites see it as a program to solely benefit people of color. But the numbers tell us something different. 
According to the United States Department of Labor, white women are the primary beneficiaries of affirmative action because there's more of them, right? And we never seem to talk about this. But consider this. The majority of white women live with other white people, men, women, and children. So the benefits of affirmative action flow through the white community. Thus, the interests of blacks and Latinos and American Indians for access to good jobs and good schools converge with those of whites to make sure that they too can access those jobs and those schools. That same interest convergence is likely what led to the passage of Proposition 58 in 2016 here in California, which overturned a ban on bilingual education by highlighting the benefit to English-only families and creating opportunities for them to learn another language in a world that increasingly values bilingualism. So utilizing that tool of interest convergence theory, I said that I was concerned that more of our English-speaking families were going to leave if they felt disconnected and that we wanted to help. I suggested that we provide something for students to start the school off as if they felt cared for and valued. I asked that she take advantage of the resources available. I had to push in order for our principal to allow us to support our school. I know that each school leader is in an overloaded mode. They have been asked to be on 24-7 for about 10 months. Everything feels like crisis mode, which can leave longer-term planning or softer needs as viewed as nice-to-haves when compared to state policies, guidelines, and having to manage a ship. We're asking school districts to steer a ship through a storm while at the same time asking them to build a plane. They're focused on the ship, but in the meantime, we have designers and engineers in their backyard asking to help, literally. We have engineers, we have public health experts, we have people with the skills and knowledge that are willing to help, yet those resources are not being utilized. The school board members do ask the questions. They ask about utilizing those supports, but somehow those questions don't turn into action or any forward progress. The answer to that is still unknown to me. I don't know why we don't utilize the resources that we have in our community, but I pushed where I could. And thanks to an outpouring of support, we were able to provide nearly 500 back to school welcome packets with special backpacks for those kindergartners entering school for the first time. This project built community, it created a sense of welcome, and while it didn't change pandemic schooling, it did make people's lives a little bit better. While I was pushing for this, at the same time, I saw that other schools, even in our own district, had systems that were already supporting their students and their schools. So, what is behind the diversity and supports? Why are there systems that rise in crises and other systems that stagnate? Hannah Jaffe speaks to this in her podcast, Nice White Parents. But another way to frame this is through the lens of epistemology. Our ways of knowing impact how we view the world around us and how we value knowledge, how we value various forms of knowledge, and how we value specific ways of being, even in a pandemic and even in an online environment. Epistemology refers to knowing 
how we know what we know, and it is influenced by who we are and how we have experienced the world around us. I see this in how each board member responds to questions, or how each parent I interact with reacts to changes made, or those that aren't being made. I hear it in parent comments, community members. I hear it in myself. It's what makes me speak out the way that I do. The scholar Tara Yasso wrote an article entitled, Whose Culture Has Capital? back in 2005. In this article, she highlighted other researchers who had paved the way for her epistemology. Other researchers had asked, whose knowledge counts and whose is discounted? When I first read her article, this was the first statement that struck me. It chastised me. I felt an ache as I thought about how I had graded students in the past. I thought about my own biases that may have impacted how I perceived students coming and showing up in class. Maybe how I viewed eligibility for special education. But that statement was also my solve. When I made grading determinations that were flying in the face of traditional practices. When I started to speak up. When I started to push for an ethical and just education that recognizes different knowledges. Yasso cites Daniel Solorsano, who talked about some tenets of critical race theory that can impact education. He talked about the intercentricity of race and racism with other forms of subordination. Talked about the fact that if we think about how the United States as a society functions and how our educational systems function, we have these inextricable layers of subordination based on class, immigration status, race, gender, and a variety of other aspects of being. So Lorsano talked about the challenge to a dominant ideology, that if we utilize this tenet or this idea of critical race theory, we can push back on the idea or concept of meritocracy, colorblindness, race neutrality, I'll talk a little bit more about neutral policies in education shortly. So Lorzano also talked about the importance of a commitment to social justice when we think about education. If we think about education as transformative, if we think about it as liberation, we may think differently about what we teach and how we teach. Fourth, he talks about the centrality of experiential knowledge. So knowing that wisdoms that come from home and our ancestors, that those are valid and appropriate and critical, in fact, to understanding the world around us. And finally, the transdisciplinary perspective. So recognizing that these things that we're going to talk about, this concept of critical race theory, it goes beyond any standard boundaries. When we think about race, when we think about gender, all sorts of other topics, they transcend categories. They impact how we look at science and history and math. You can build them into any subject. Now those five themes that Solorzano talked about, Yasso continues to define um, and talk a little bit about how she determines her epistemology. Yasso acknowledges that 
This concept may fly in the face of what has been considered traditional education. We know that frequently what is taught and what is expected to be learned values one form of knowledge. And sometimes it can oppress and silence the voices of many students. Gerardo Lopez in 2003 wrote an article talking about quote unquote racially neutral politics of education. And he uses a critical race theory to dispel the idea that neutral education and educational policy exists. This was the second article that I read that influenced my epistemology or my ways of knowing. He starts by cautioning against ignoring the forms of racism that exist at such a deep and systematic level that they are often invisible, or at least invisible to the people that have power and privilege. He specifically points to educational leadership programs that ignore systemic racism and the myriad ways that racism permeates throughout the fabric of our educational systems. He points to something that Peggy McIntosh calls the invisible line of privilege. Let me have her explain it to you. I imagine a hypothetical line of social justice, a hypothetical line, an imaginary line of social justice that is parallel to the floor, also parallel to the earth. And on this imaginary line of social justice, things feel fair. Below it, one can be pushed down either as a member of a group or an individual through bullying, teasing, being stereotyped, having prejudices against one or one's group, being a survivor of genocide, being a, a scapegoat, being a discarded person. What I study is what happens above the hypothetical line of social justice. And in school, I was never taught to even notice this realm. Above the hypothetical line, one can be pushed up, believed, thought worthy of um, responsibility, considered to be responsible with money, considered to be capable of doing the schoolwork or any other kind of work. One can be seen as representative of the best. That's privilege. Above the hypothetical line of justice, one has more than one deserved because of circumstances of birth and other people's positive projections onto one. And below it is disadvantage. That is unearned disadvantage. And I believe everybody in this room has a combination of both experiences, having more than we actually earned and having less than we actually earned. And I didn't used to think this way. Peggy McIntosh talks about unearned privileges. Gerardo Lopez talks about the reproductive functions of schooling and encourages us to envision different possibilities for education. Nice and neutral that invisible line, these are terms that allow for continued marginalization and oppression of groups of people in our society. Lopez focused on the term neutral to show how these concepts ignore that the systems are designed to maintain power and privilege within a small group of people. He highlights assumptions that ignore the fact that for decades and centuries, people of color, women, LGBTQ, the working poor have not had equal rights in nearly any aspect of their lives, and that some of that has actually been legally sanctioned. 
Now, I had the opportunity to hear um, Dr. Lopez speak when he came to present to the master's students here in the College of Education. He commented that when he wrote that issue, when he wrote that article, it was kind of snuck in at the last minute uh, in a special issue. And if it weren't for that special issue, he wasn't sure that his comments would have been published because they were so revolutionary and so contrary to how our educational system was functioning. This was important for me to hear because he wrote this 17 years ago and it continues to be either unheard of or ignored in many spaces. Dr. Lopez described how context matters, how history matters. The critical race theory concept of counter stories is a powerful tool if it's allowed to take its space in our educational landscape. Lopez refers to it as a way to remove the veil that surrounds the idea of a racially neutral society. He says, the only way we will make advances in dealing with the problem of racism is if we take the time to see and understand how it operates, recognize it within ourselves, highlight it within our field, and take the brave steps to do something about it. This was another powerful jolt to my system, to my ways of knowing. In that article, I recognized that the system is working as it was designed for those who have historically benefited, and it was replicating the results generation after generation. And I am a part of that system. I hadn't before thought about the reproductive nature of education. I hadn't thought about how the fact that the actions that we take propagate the inequities that students bring to the table, that students show us that are existing in our society. I started to think about education, access to education, access to high quality education, access to good grades as walls. I started envisioning in my head this concept of walls that are put up to keep certain people out and to allow certain people in. In my head, those walls had these secret doors, doors that could only be opened if you had the right key. And that's what I started to talk about as I was asked to think about what makes me angry in education. So I wrote this for that assignment. And if you want to, you can play along, close your eyes. Let me tell you a little story. Education is a house. Walk in, you see a room, a simple room with four walls. But unbeknownst to many, those walls have secret doors with secret keys. Those doors are hard to spot unless you've been told just how to find them. Only the privileged few are given the maps and even fewer are issued the keys that unlock those doors. They're just for you. Don't share them. If you forgot your keys, it's okay. You know the code. Just say it and doors open just for you. For the rest of us, they say, we let you in. We gave you access. Why aren't you grateful? We're allowed into the room, but every wall that is put up keeps us from moving forward, from moving up, from escaping the small space they gave us. We don't get to see the mansion that exists behind those walls. Those walls exist to maintain the status quo, 
and they are good at keeping people in their place. I am angry at the walls. I'm angry at the key holders, the keys, the secret doors, the system that dictates which room or rooms you gain entry into. I'm angry at performative statements like, we are committed to racial and social justice, while my students look around and see no reflection of themselves. I'm angry at the money being thrown at titles like Director of Diversity and Inclusion, while my students fail out, struggle to maintain, and barely survive, lacking resources to forge those keys. I'm angry when I hear, follow the rules and you'll succeed, while I see people breaking those rules left and right only to find out that rules are more suggestions if you have those magic keys. I'm angry when I think of what could have been and where some of my students would be were it not for those walls. I'm angry when I see my emerging bilingual students pushed out of gifted or magnet classes because learning another language on top of that might be too much for you. I'm angry at myself for not realizing when those doors were opened for me and for not thinking to keep them propped open for those who came behind me. I'm angry that it took me so long to realize that I held some of those keys. And as I curl into a ball at the end of my day, my fists and my jaw clenched, I let the tears fall. I take a deep breath. I dream of what true inclusion might mean for me, my daughters, my students, and the world. Every night, I commit to finding cracks in walls, forging new keys, and knocking down some of those walls. And eventually, I get to go to sleep. But even as I hold some of the keys, our students hold some of those keys too. In that same transformational article back in 2005, Dr. Yoso talked about cultural wealth as versions of those keys that can help unlock doors. She mentioned six keys or six sources of wealth. And just as we talk about financial capital, she discusses various forms of cultural wealth. We can talk about those forms of wealth in future podcasts, but broadly, the six forms of capital that she identifies are aspirational capital, linguistic capital, resistant capital, navigational capital, social capital, familial capital, and how cultural capital impacts all of those. The key that most of my students come with, the capital that they bring to school, is aspirational capital. Many of my students come with the families who have encouraged them to dream and attain an education that is higher than anyone in their homes. Despite the lack of models, students are able to envision themselves attaining their bachelor's degree, attaining a master's degree, becoming a teacher, a speech-language pathologist, an audiologist. And this aspirational capital helps them navigate those initial bumps when many of them transfer into our university and they run up against some of those walls because they're missing navigational capital or when they encounter locked doors because of GPA. They remain resilient in the face of a system that was built to keep them out. 
and I'm here for that. I'm here to help them succeed. This fall, I have spent hundreds of hours, one-on-one, face-to-face, on Zoom, with my students. I hear their passions. I hear their dreams. I hear their concerns. I hear their fears. I do my best to support them and show them the value of the wealth they bring with them. And I hear them. I truly listen. When waves of shame or waves of familiarity or fear wash over me and I want to shut down, I stay present in the moment. When they tell me they want to give up, when I hear it in their voice, when I hear that they don't feel like they are worthy of those keys, I remind them of what they've achieved and what they have to offer. I remind them that they have wealth, they have value, that their very presence is often an act of resistance, that they have resisted the calls to quit, to drop out, and their presence, their success is knocking down some of those walls, or at the very least, putting some serious cracks in them. So back to those waves, the ones that wash over us when we feel overwhelmed. Maybe part of what we need to do is listen. Let's attend to each response with gratitude, each thought that comes in. What is it telling us? Where is it guiding us? Maybe let's look at those waves, even the ones that are overwhelming, as gifts, as strengths, because waves can tumble walls. Waves are powerful. episode, I'll introduce you to the work of Lisa Delpit, and we'll talk about a just education. A work in progress is recorded, edited, and produced by Me, Myself, and I Productions. Thanks for listening.